Good morning. My name is Brandon, as she said, one of the pastors here at, uh, at Sojourn Heights. Uh, this is also uh, our final week in a series through the Gospel of Luke. Um, I'll tell you where we're going next at the end of the sermon, but for now, uh, Luke is one of what we call the four Gospels, these four letters that focus in on the life, the teaching, the ministry of Jesus. And today, uh, we're going to look at an event, uh, a conversation really between two men on a road and Jesus. It's a conversation that happens after the resurrection uh, in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so let me, let me frame where we're going like this. Last week we had a guest preacher from Oxford, England, and so I thought it would be appropriate uh, to start with a quote from a professor from Oxford. This professor is uh, not a Christian, and here is his take on the resurrection. He said, I live with a puzzle of wondering how something so apparently crazy can be so captivating to millions of other members of my species. I, I appreciate his honesty, because the truth is it really is a crazy claim. I mean, put yourself in his shoes, professor, thinker, intellectual, logical, man who has died, who is not dead, crazy claim. But that's the claim, that there is a man who has died, who is not dead. This claim really is the centerpiece, the hinge that Christianity rests on. And it's a crazy claim. What he's doing is he's trying to grapple with how something so apparently logically crazy, something so, uh, in his mind, irrational can be so captivating, so compelling. But here's, here's what I want to do. I want to try to broaden his question out a, a little bit and ask this question. Why are redemption stories so universally compelling? Stories that go like this, the hero falls and rises again. Why are stories that go, the hero falls and rises again, something that we are so innately enamored with? I mean, last Sunday, Tiger Woods won the Masters, and grown men and women sat on their couches and cried. <laughs> Don't act like some of you weren't one of them. Here's my confession. You ready for my confession? I recorded it. I have watched the last three holes three times. I have a counseling session set up next week. Why? Why are we so drawn into these hero falls and rises again stories? Here's, here's why. These redemption stories, they are woven into the fiber of humanity because these redemption stories are shadows of the Easter story. They are visible parables, if you will, of the true story, the Easter story, the story that all of humanity longs for, whether we know it or not. The Easter story is a story of a hero who has fallen and has risen again. And so we are going to get drawn into what I think is the single greatest redemption story of all time about a man who died who is not dead. And we're going to get drawn into the story through this conversation between these two men and Jesus. These two men, as they encounter the Christ who has died and is risen, I want to answer these three questions. Question one, how do they respond to the death of Jesus? How do they respond? Two, why do they initially, initially not believe in the resurrection? And then three, what happened when they finally did? So how do they respond to the death? Why do they not believe in the resurrection? What happened when they finally did? So let's go, um, how do they respond? Well, 
um, to the death of Jesus, here's how it begins. It begins with them with unmet expectations. So here's the setting. These two men, they have been in Jerusalem. They've been following Jesus. Uh, they, uh, they saw him die. Now they're on a road walking away. They're having a conversation. The language, the way it's written, it's an intense emotional conversation. And Jesus comes up to them and he says this. Verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? I love that question, as if he didn't know. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. You see, here was their expectation of Jesus. He was the one who would what? Redeem Israel. This was their expectation, that in following Jesus, we're going to get the one who's going to redeem Israel. What they wanted was a political leader who would rival Caesar, someone who could put Israel on the map, guard them, protect them, get us out from under Rome's thumb. Tim Keller, uh, a retired now pastor in New York, uh, said this about the, uh, we thought he'd be the one to redeem Israel. He said, when you think the word redeem, right away you think spiritually. The word redeem, as Cleopas is using it, originally meant to release from slavery. Cleopas thought the only problem he had, the only slavery he needed to be released from, was political slavery. Cleopas said, what we really need is salvation from the Romans. If we could just, get, if we could just have economic freedom, if we could just have political freedom, then everything will be all right. You see, here's the, the point. These two men, when they began following Jesus, they began following Jesus not out of, let me put together an equ- a theological equation that produces Son of God. They began following Jesus because they wanted a change in their circumstances. They wanted a change in their current reality. Now, to be fair to these two men, this is very normal. It's very normal. In fact, the majority of us in this room, we began following Jesus out of some need for a change in circumstance. Most of us approach Jesus the first time like this. I'm single, I'm lonely, and I don't want to be. My marriage has fallen apart, and I want it fixed. I was abused as a child, and the shame I feel from that won't go away. I'm a single mom, and I just need some help. I need someone to look me in the eye and know they understand what I'm going through. I'm an addict, and I don't want to be. They began following Jesus the way most of us begin following Jesus. The question is, when their circumstances did not change, how did they respond? Well, we've already read it. It was back in verse 17. It says, and they stood still, looking sad. Sad, the word for despair. They stood still in despair. They came looking for political freedom, for economic freedom, and when Jesus died, to them that meant the end of that. Our hopes, what we wanted, our dreams, what we thought our life would be like, crushed, gone. And despair set in. And I'm guessing 
I'm guessing that most of us in this room can identify with these two men. Most of us in this room have experienced what it's like to have something we want God to fix, to change, to heal, and to want it now. And nothing happened. I'm guessing either most of us have been there or we are there. For them, when Jesus died, he became an unmet expectation. And that unmet expectation led to despair. So when they were confronted then with Jesus no longer being dead, the question becomes, why did they not believe? Why did they not believe? Because Luke writes this in a way, and really all of the gospel writers that do, they write in such a way that they expect what they're writing to be believed. They write in such a way that they open themselves up to cross-examination. Right, so the, the, the gospels, Luke included, and really I, I think Luke specifically, but um, that's debatable, uh, uh, write in a way that it's clear they are not writing a legend. They give way too much detail for this to be a legend. In giving so much detail, they are opening themselves up to be cross-examined. He's writ- he writes it in a way that he expects it to be believed. This is way too normal to be compelling fiction, right? Uh, what's, the, what's our story about? Two men walking down a road. Not exactly the stuff of epic fiction. Way too normal to be fiction. It's intended to be taken literally as an actual historic event, so not Jesus living on the way Shakespeare lives on through his writings. So, why do these men not believe? Well, let me show you what I think. Verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see, but him they did not see. Okay, notice um, twice it said that women were at the tomb, that it was women who saw it and came and told uh, the disciples what happens. Right, right before this, we backed up in our, in our passage in, in Luke 24, verse 10 and 11. This is what we find about the actual tomb after Jesus had died. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So the women are at the empty grave. They go and they tell the apostles what happened, and they don't believe them. Why? Here's why. In the first century, a woman's testimony was not considered admissible in court. Women were considered to be an unreliable source of information, unreliable sources, which is credibility to the validity of the Bible. Because if you are writing fiction, you would never include women as the first ones to see that Jesus has been resurrected, the ones who go as the messengers that Jesus is alive. You would never include that, ever. Which is probably worth noting, the Bible has what was an unprecedented view of the dignity of women. Unprecedented. You will not find another religion or philosophical system in the ancient world that had anywhere near the value and dignity placed on women that Christianity does. Unprecedented in its day. So why did these two men not believe? Why initially when encountered with the resurrection did they not believe it? They were blind, here's why. They were blinded by cultural presuppositions. They were blinded by cultural presuppositions. Uh, a cultural presupposition is like this. It's things that we innately believe that are just ingrained to us, 
and that we see the world through. So it's, it's, it's as if um, you've been wearing a set of red-lensed glasses your entire life. Everything around you, you're seeing the world through this red-tinted lens, and everything is shaded red. That's a cultural presupposition. And here's the reality. All of us have them. All of us have them. For some, these are a real barrier to believing. Right? So cultural presuppositions can be, can be things like, I, I just, I'm rational, and I find the resurrection irrational, and therefore I can't believe. I'm emotionally stable, and I think it's for people who are really in emotional need, and they need to believe, and so I can't believe. Or, a, um, or one that is really in line with them and their political hopes for, uh, for Jesus, very common in our day, in our culture, in our context, is this. If I were to believe in the resurrection and therefore become a Christian, does that mean that I then have to become a Republican or a Democrat? I don't want to believe because I don't want to wind up in one of the camps, neither one of which are true. It's just a cultural presupposition that's been ingrained into us. Neither one are true. For these, for these men, Jesus was an unmet expectation, but it was their cultural presuppositions that wouldn't allow their expectation to be changed. So what happened then when they did believe? Because eventually these two men did. When they did believe, what happened? Well, verse 27. In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's keep reading. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. <coughs> so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked with us, talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures. While he opened to us the scriptures. You see, here's what happened. Their eyes were opened. They could see him. Not, not just like see him, like they'd seen him, but now they could see him. They could see him. And then they looked back and they said, you know what? Were our hearts not burning when he was with us? What happens when you burn something? You melt it. Did our hearts not melt when we were with him? This is no random stranger who walked up to us. This is the man who died but is not dead. And as he talked with us, as he explained the scriptures to us, did our hearts not melt within us? Did our hearts not melt? See, they felt something. They felt something. You see, when Jesus opens your eyes, when he burns your heart, when he melts your heart, for them it redefined everything. Everything. There was nothing left untouched, nothing left uh, that he did not redefine for them. He, uh, everything from uh, their life to their experience to the way that they saw the world got redefined. He redefined the Bible for them. It was as if they'd been wearing red lensed glasses their entire life. They took them on, put on yellow lenses. The whole world looked different. Redefined the Bible for them. No longer, no longer is the Bible simply a religious book. No longer is it a set of moral instructions. It is the story of the Christ who came, died, resurrected, and is redeeming the world. 
You see, no longer is Israel or am I the hero in the story of the Scriptures. Jesus becomes the hero of the story. Jesus becomes the central figure in the story of the Bible. He becomes a central figure in the story of the world. It redefines death for them. See, one of the reasons they had a hard time believing was their worldview didn't allow for a resurrection. Maybe at the end, but certainly not one man in the middle of history. And it redefined death for them. Death is no longer the end. If you didn't see, 150 Christians in Sri Lanka were murdered this morning. Eight churches blown up. The resurrection of Jesus says to them and to their families, death is not the end. Death might rule the day today, but it will not rule the day tomorrow. It says, it redefines what redemption is. That you are not redefined or redeemed, sorry, into a position of political power or into a political party. You are read, redeemed into a relationship with God. Think about how the story began. Two men, what? Walking. Walking on a road, and Jesus, what did he do? Came and walked up next to him. Did you know that walking is the language of intimacy in the Bible? One pastor or theologian called it the currency of intimacy. Think about how the Bible began. This is how the, the story of the Scriptures begins like this. God creates the world, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they um, do not believe God, but they obey Satan. They take, they eat, sin enters the world, and then what happens? And they heard, they're, they're shamed, they're afraid, and they heard the sound of the Lord God. Okay, hang on, when I do that, that's for you, all right? <laughs> We'll do it again. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking, walking in the garden. Think about the parallels between these two stories. Adam and Eve, they don't believe God, and God comes and he walks with them. These two men don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and he comes and he walks with them. It's the language of intimacy in the Bible. Now, um, they didn't have social media back in the day, but think about what it looks like to converse with somebody as you're on a walk with them versus over social media. On social media, I can communicate with you devoid of any relationship whatsoever. And so I can say things that are hurtful to you and it really doesn't affect me. You know why? I don't see the hurt on your face. I don't see how it affects you. But if we're on a walk together, if we're strolling down the streets and I say something hurtful to you, I see it on your face in real time. I see the way it affects you. I see the pain you feel in real time. See, walking is the language of intimacy. It's personal. It's a sign of an existing relationship. To be honest, our staff does this all the time. Right? If we uh, have something serious we want to talk to uh, somebody about, we say, hey, you want to go for a walk? I need to talk to you. If anybody comes up to you, uh, and you work here, and someone, and they say, hey, I need to, I need to chat with you. Want to go for a walk? It's like, oh, brace yourself. <laughs> no telling. But, oh, brace yourself for the kinds of conversations you have face-to-face -face when there's an existing relationship. It's a sign of a relationship. Which is why language like on a walk with Jesus is a sign of a relationship with Jesus. It's a sign that you have one. And so, in light of this, it's probably worth asking, how's yours? 
How is it? When was the last time Jesus melted your heart? When was the last time you opened the scriptures and you could just feel your heart burn? Do you even have one? This morning, uh, on my way over here in my, my Uber, my Uber driver uh, made, a, made a comment about Easter. I didn't even get a chance to talk. She just launched in, which is not normal. Um, I prefer to start the conversation and finish it, for the record. Um, <laughs> She made a comment about Easter, uh, and then she went right into uh, this. Um, I, I, I like to go to the early service at my church because, you know, church, it's, it's, so, it's so boring. Um, and the early service is always the shortest one. Uh, and then I have the full day to myself. Hey, you're, you're dressed nice. Are you going to work? <laughs> yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> if I had more time with her, I may have said something like this. If you, if you think of gathering together with the church as something boring and to just get out of the way, it, it might be a sign that Jesus has never melted your heart. At best, it's a sign that that relationship has gone cold and stale and is growing distant. I may have said that. But it's worth asking... Do you even have one? Because listen, this story that we're looking at today, this is a story of Jesus moving toward people who do not believe yet. The story we're looking at today, the story of these two men on a road walking and Jesus coming up next to them was not a story of Jesus coming and affirming the content of the faith of two people. It was Jesus showing up to two people who do not believe and walking with them. Two men who think he has failed them, Two men who think he is nothing more than an unmet expectation, and he shows up and he walks with them. This is a story of Jesus walking with people who do not yet believe, who have unmet expectations from him. And since this is a story of Jesus showing up to people who are in despair, who, are, uh, who do not believe, and that lack of belief, that unmet expectation has led to despair, this is a story of Jesus showing up and walking with them. And since it is, here's how I want to close. I want to close it like this. I want to make an observation from the text that, honestly, I can't prove. But I don't think it's a stretch, and I don't think you will either. More than likely, when these two men were walking down the road, sadness, despair, was not the only emotion that they experienced. Likely, they felt the full range of human emotion on this road, on this walk. The full range from anger why did he lie to us? Why did he lie to us? He has been lying to us about who he was. We thought he was the redeemer because of what he said. And now he's dead. I've been following him for nothing. To shame. To shame. How could we have believed it? How foolish are we? We are going to look so foolish in front of our family. How could we have believed it? To fear and anxiety. If he's not the re redeemer who is going to get us out from under the thumb of Rome, who will be? Who will be? Who will be? So what does the resurrection of Jesus have to say to that full range of human emotion? We're going to say everything, and that's what we're going to talk about the next five weeks. 
Because this story is a story of Jesus coming up to two men who are experiencing the full range of brokenness, the full range of human emotion, the full range from fear to anxiety uh, to anger to sadness and despair, and he walks with them in the middle of it. The greatest redemption story ever told is about a man who died who is not dead, and that man who is not dead came up and walked with two men in the middle of their brokenness, and he wants to walk with you in the middle of yours. And the Bible and the resurrected Christ have something to say to all that you feel. Because the resurrection means that there is a chance at wholeness and healing. But first, we've got to press deep into what's wrong. So in the middle of it, we can walk with a resurrected reigning king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to gather together, to be together. I pray that you are with our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka and with their families. I pray you're with us in the middle of our brokenness and the middle of our heartache and pain and where we identify with these two men. I pray you would meet us right in the middle of it. And that you would step into the fear and the anxiety and all that we feel and you would walk with us through it. Jesus, we're asking you to melt our hearts just like you melted theirs. Would you melt ours? Would you burn inside of us? Would you make us that kind of community, a community who can't help but burn? We need your grace. That won't happen apart from it. But we're asking for it. And we're asking in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.